Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello and welcome to episode 416 with Stephen Landsberg. Stephen is an economist who shares how to push your thinking beyond the obvious so you can get some cool insights. You'll learn one, how to jog your brain out of complacent thinking, two, a common assumption that often leads people to make poor decisions, and three, two exercises to help expand your thinking beyond the obvious. If you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep416. Now here's Stephen's story. Stephen E. Landsberg is a professor of economics at the University of Rochester, where students recently elected him professor of the year. He's the author of The Armchair Economist, Fair Play, The Big Questions, two textbooks in economics, and much more. His current research is in the area of quantum game theory. He writes the monthly Everyday Economics column in Slate Magazine and has written regularly for Forbes and occasionally for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. He's appeared as a commentator on the PBS Turner Broadcasting series, Damn Right, and has made over 200 appearances on television and radio broadcasts over the past few years. So thanks to Stephen for sharing some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Stephen. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. Well, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom and to learn about your skills with aerial silks. What's this about? Well, that's a little bit off the topic I thought we'd be talking about, but I'm happy to talk about it. Well, yeah, let's warm it up a little. Aerial silks is like what you see in uh, Cirque du Soleil, where uh, you've got a long piece of fabric hanging typically 24 feet from the ceiling, and a performer will climb on the fabric. And you wrap your body in various ways so that when you let go, you fall almost to the floor, but the fabric catches you before you actually land. And the crowd gasps. And the crowd gasps. (laughs) I'm not quite as good at it as those performers you see in Cirque du Soleil, but I've been doing it for some years. And it's it's my hobby. It's what I do in the evenings, and, uh, and I enjoy it a lot. That is so fascinating. You're an economics professor, and this is what you do for kicks. (laughs) It's a good workout. It's less boring than most of the other things I used to do to work out. Uh Uh-huh. And it's fun. I guess I just wonder, like, where do you sign up for that? It's like, did you see a flyer? It's like, oh, cool. I'll give this a shot. Or how does one begin? You know, I got into it because I've got a lot of friends, as it happens in Boston, who all simultaneously got excited about this at the same time. Uh, And there was a place for them to go take lessons in Boston. I live in Rochester, New York. There was no place here. Uh, So I used to do it uh, from time to time when I visited my Boston friends. But then I was 
very excited after a couple of years of that when a studio finally opened up in Rochester and I went and took a lesson. Turned out the instructors were fantastic. Uh, and uh, so I've been going ever since. Oh, that's great. Well, I'm so excited to now, I'm trying, I can't come up with a brilliant segue on the spot. <laughs> you know, we're able to talk about mental acrobatics now <laughs> in your book, Can You Outsmart an Economist? You lay out a hundred puzzles, not just for funsies, but rather with the particular goal of training the brain to think and operate better. That sounds so cool. I'd love it if you could kick us off by sharing maybe one of the most surprising and fascinating insights you've gleaned from us humans and our thought processes from this puzzle creation and working process. Well, it's all about thinking beyond the obvious. And it's all about looking at human behavior that you might be inclined to dismiss as just irrational or pointless and thinking a little deeper and asking yourself, why are people behaving the way they're behaving? Try to put yourself in their shoes, try to see what kind of incentives they were facing and try to figure out what's really going on. So, so here's an example. I'm a college teacher. The end of every semester, my students fill out these evaluation forms to say how they liked me and every college teacher in the country faces the same thing. And every year you nail it. And I do pretty well, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say I do pretty well. But there is very strong statistical evidence that physically beautiful teachers do better on those forms than other teachers who appear to be, uh, you know, equally well qualified, equally good. Systematically, the most beautiful teachers do best on these things. So now we see why you do pretty well on these, Stephen. Huh? I'm afraid I, I do well on these despite that. Uh, but. The question is, why are students so consistently favoring the most physically beautiful professors? Now, the simple, straightforward, obvious answer is that students are a little bit shallow and like everybody else, they are swayed by things that aren't actually relevant. And so they're uh, making evaluations that are not really accurate evaluations of the teaching quality. They're letting all sorts of other things influence them. That's the that's the obvious explanation, but I think it's the wrong explanation. I believe what's really going on is this. Beautiful people have a lot of job opportunities that other people don't have, not just in modeling, not just in the movies, but in retail, in sales, beauty helps, in anything where you have to deal with the public. So a beautiful person who chose to be a college teacher on average is going to be a person who gave up a lot of other opportunities in order to be a college teacher. And on average, that's going to be somebody who's enthusiastic about college teaching and is probably pretty good at it. On the other hand, and again, speaking about broad averages here, people who are less attractive had fewer other opportunities. Maybe some of them went into college teaching because it was the only thing available to them. So you would expect in any occupation, even an occupation where Physical beauty doesn't matter, especially in an occupation where physical beauty doesn't matter. If beautiful people go into that occupation, on average, they're going to be the best because they're the ones who gave up the most in order to go there. As I say in the book, if you show me a lighthouse keeper with movie star good looks, I'm going to show you the world's best lighthouse keeper because if he gave up a career in Hollywood to keep that lighthouse, he must really love lighthouse keeping. And so the, the whole idea of, of the book, Can You Outsmart an Economist?, is to think one step deeper like that about all of the various little and big mysterious things that we see as we go through life. 
Well, Stephen, you really got me hooked and intrigued by the particular example with the beautiful professors. I think it was at the rate my professor with the chili peppers, you know, the chili pepper havers. Yep. Because I mean, that seems like a very plausible hypothesis, you know, as to, yeah, sure. You know, that could add up and explain things and make some sense. And now I'm wondering, well, hey, is it true? Like, and I guess the way we'd have maybe test that would be you'd have to have almost actors, <laughs> you know, with the same mannerisms and vocal inflection, maybe even lip syncing. Absolutely. I cannot prove to you that this is true. Yeah. And as I say in the book, there are a number of puzzles here where I don't know for sure that I have the right answer, but I think I have an answer that's got a pretty good chance of being right and a good reason why it's got a pretty good chance of being right. And for goodness sake, the message is not that you should just believe me. The message is that you should try to think the same way and try to find some uh, some other explanations. Can I give you another example of the same sort of thing? Oh, sure thing. Yes. Yeah, so, maybe just one more tidbit on that first. And it's just that what's fun about it is you're right. We may not know it to be true, but it is teeing up a great extra, you know, question or piece of research. And I think it's just keeping me a little bit more mentally limber in the sense of now I'm a lot more fascinated by this question than I was beforehand. And I think we've got one fine hypothesis, which can very well spark, you know, additional hypotheses. And in so doing, I'm just doing better thinking. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, there is evidence for very similar phenomena. For example, um, barbers. Barbers today are about exactly as productive as they were 200 years ago. It takes just as long to cut somebody's hair now as it did 200 years ago. The equipment hasn't gotten all that better. Nothing has changed in terms of the productivity, and yet their wages, the wages of a barber today compared to 200 years ago are 25, 35 times as much. Why did that happen? This is adjusted for inflation. After adjusting for inflation, yes, of course. The real wages, the real purchasing power of their wages is 30, 35 times as much as it used to be. Why did that happen? The answer, most economists believe, and we do have a lot of evidence on this, is that 200 years ago, a lot of people became barbers because there was nothing else to do. Today, people who become barbers have a lot of alternative possible occupations. There are so many other things you can do which have gotten more productive. Factory work, being a, a tailor, anything like that. The machines are so much better now. Everybody is so much more productive. And so those occupations have drawn a lot of barbers away into those other fields with those greater opportunities. The remaining barbers face less competition and therefore command higher wages. So as long as wages go up in some industries, that pulls up wages in the other industries even where no productivity change has happened. It does it by pulling people out of that occupation, making less competition, driving the wages up. And it's also interesting that I think of barbers nowadays as kind of like a specialty. Like if you just need your hair cut, you go over to Great Clips you know, or, or wherever and fork over just a few bucks. Whereas a barber, oh boy, they're going to get a, a fancy brush and they're going to put some foamy gel or foamy shave cream on your neck and use a straight blade. At least that's the barbers I love to go to. <laughs> and I don't know if barbers back in the day were more kind of just sort of commonplace with regard to, yeah, this is where you go for your haircut. But even the guy at Great Clips today is earning 35 times what his predecessor was 200 years ago. And no offense to the Great Clips <laughs> listeners <laughs> out there, um, you know, there's the branding. It's kind of value oriented is there. Okay. So intriguing. Now, well, now, 
let's talk then about we're looking beyond the obvious. And so then in practice, how do we get into that habit? You know, are there kind of key questions that you ask yourself? It seems like one of them was just about thinking about the incentives that are underlying things. And and how else do you kind of jog the brain out of just complacently taking the obvious approach? A lot of it is thinking about incentives. A lot of it, of course, is just, you know, practice. You you train your yourself to think this way all the time. The world is full of little mysteries. You look around and you try and analyze why uh, the world is full of people doing things that I don't understand. And you train yourself <laughs> to stop and ask yourself why they're doing those things. Um, another, uh, and and I'll have more examples of that sort of thing for you later on if you want them, but in another direction, uh, Uh, Another thing I touch on a lot in the book is not taking statistics at face value, but uh, looking a little bit deeper, looking at what underlies the numbers that seem to tell a story sometimes. But when you look a little deeper, they're telling a very different story. For example, the University of California at Berkeley some years ago, somebody noticed that the admission rate for graduate programs for male applicants was about three times as great as for female applicants, even when they were equally qualified. A man applying to graduate school at Berkeley and an equally qualified woman applying to graduate school at Berkeley, the man had three times greater chance of being accepted. Uh, You look at that statistic and you say, wow, that looks like discrimination. A lot of lawyers took that seriously. They took it so seriously that uh, the university ended up being sued for discrimination. This case ended up in court. The case fell apart when somebody noticed that the discrepancy was entirely accounted for by the fact that for some reason at that time and place, women were consistently applying to the most selective programs and men to the least selective programs. You had uh, I'm making this up. I don't know that it was the law school and the medical school, but it was um, the law school, let's say, accepts almost everyone who applies, male or female. The medical school takes a tiny fraction of those who apply, male or female. They both treat everybody equally, but by for some reason, men tend to apply to the law school, women tend to apply to the medical school. That's going to cause uh, men to be mostly accepted and women to be mostly rejected, even though there is absolutely no discrimination going on. And in it, Sometimes there is real discrimination, but in the case of Berkeley, there was clearly not. Once you look at the numbers carefully, there was clearly not. The case was thrown out of court as soon as somebody realized this and uh, not, however, before a lot of lawyers made a lot of money. Right. Yeah, you know, that is intriguing. And I find that's often the case with, well, hey, I'm just doing this recently with my podcast data. You know, I've got some Apple engagement data, which will tell me what is the average proportion of an episode that gets listened to. But that is by no means a fair indicator of which episodes are the most engaging because some of my episodes are much longer than others. There you go. And so I actually went to great lengths to come up with a fairer comparison point, which was what percentage of listeners got to minute 25 is kind of what I'm using. So it's like, hey, whether the episode was 33 minutes or 54 minutes, it's fair enough to see, was it interesting enough for you to hang out for 25 minutes? That sounds just right to me. Well, thank uh, you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you're doing that. (laughs) Well, and likewise with download numbers with regard to, hey, what are the most downloaded episodes ever? It's like, well, you know, some of those episodes have been around longer and have had more opportunity to be downloaded. And some of them appeared during sort of uh, hotter streaks in which there were sort of more 
total listeners listening to everything. So I've chosen to index them to the recent episodes. But anyway, I'm right with you. Sometimes you got to dig deeper than the data on their surface. And if you look in the book too, I I, I won't uh, go into the details because it, it I think you need a, a piece of paper in front of you with some numbers on it. But equally well, there are cases where you can look at statistics that seem to be clearly showing that there is no discrimination, whereas in fact, there is a lot of discrimination underlying the numbers. And again, I give you some examples in the book. So the numbers can fool you in either direction. Oh, that's interesting. Well, could you maybe walk us through some particular categories of bias or things that you're seeing again and again and again that can lead us to suboptimal decisions? Again, there's the statistical stuff. There is a chapter, and again, um, I I would hesitate to try and give these examples on the air because uh, they involve a few numbers, and I think it helps a lot to see the numbers on the page in front of you. But uh, there are examples in the book of simple little games that you can play where you've got uh, a choice of what kind of prizes you want to be eligible for, and you can decide whether you want to play for these prizes or decide whether you want to play for those prizes, play the game, see how things turn out. Consistently, people prefer certain sets of prizes to others in these games. They prefer playing certain ways to playing other ways. And if you allow them to play the way that the majority of people choose to play, the combination of games that they're playing guarantees, absolutely guarantees that at the end of the day, they will lose money. They are making choices that guarantees that they will lose more money in the games they lose, that they will win in the games they win. Um, uh, And yet those are the choices people instinctively make. Clearly, those are not good choices to be making. And I think we can learn a little about from that, about how uh, uh, we should be more careful about the choices that we instinctively make. Mm-hmm. So you say we prefer certain ways. Are there a couple summary principles that point to, you know, what are the nature of our instinctive preferences that can serve us suboptimally? I think for one thing, we're often too quick to suppose that other people are behaving irrationally when in fact they're behaving very purposefully in ways that we don't understand. Um, I recently bought a television set, a Sony television set. And uh, I was surprised to discover that it's absolutely exactly the same price no matter where I shop. I can go to Best Buy, I can go to a discounter, I can go to the internet. It's exactly the same price everywhere, except from a couple of places on the internet that are pretty skeevy looking and where it's pretty clear you're never going to get your television (laughs) set. But it's the exact same price everywhere. And it turns out that the reason for that is that Sony requires all of their retailers to charge the same price. And... At first, that might look like Sony is trying to keep the price up. But you think about that, and it doesn't actually make any sense because Sony doesn't care about the retail price. They care about the wholesale price, and they have total control over the wholesale price. They sell the television set for $1,000 to the retailers. Why should they care whether the retailer resells it for $1,200 or $1,500 or $2,000? It looks like Sony is just being sort of irrational there. And uh, a person might be tempted to say, boy, Sony hasn't really thought this through. But, you know, Sony's in this business. They've thought it through. Uh, You've got to assume that they've thought this through. And there is a good reason for it. And it turns out that the good reason is this. What they're trying to combat is people like me who 
if the price were different at different places, I would go to Best Buy where they've got fantastic customer service. They've got all the models on the wall. They'll talk to me for two hours about the pros and cons of the different models. And then I'll go across town to the discounter and buy it cheaper. The problem with that is if enough people do that, Best Buy will stop carrying the television sets. And Sony does not want that. So they're requiring the discounter to keep the price up, not because they care about the retail price, but because they care about the discounter stealing customers from Best Buy and giving Best Buy an incentive to stop offering that customer service. They care about the customer service because that makes people more likely to buy Sony's. So again, you look at something somebody's doing, it doesn't seem to make sense. I, sometimes we have an instinct to say, wow, they never thought that through. But usually they have thought it through if it's something that's important to them. And then you can learn something by thinking a little deeper about why they're doing what they're doing. Well, and it's interesting, you know, to go maybe meta there for a moment, we're too quick to assume and suppose that others are behaving irrationally. I suppose that is adaptive for us because it's just easier. There's less energy required from our brains to be like, nah, that was stupid of them, as opposed to really thinking, hmm, what was behind that? What could they be benefiting? What are the implications? Like, that's a lot more work. Sure. But part of my message is that that work can be a lot of fun. Uh, people like solving puzzles. Uh, people enjoy crossword puzzles. They enjoy Sudokus. They enjoy brain teasers. And uh, you can you can harness that love of doing puzzles to doing this kind of puzzle. And I think it, it does make you a little more insightful. And there's no reason you, it can't. It, it is a little more work, but it, there's no reason that that work can't be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'd love to get your take on, let's say that you're at work and a puzzle presents itself. And let's see, I guess I have to make an example so we can get kind of concrete. But I want to hear your sort of steps or approaches or what you do first, second and third. So let's just say we are thinking, you know, we're having all of these dissatisfied customer service calls. <laughs> you know, they call and they are not pleased with what has happened on the other end of the line. And we want to fix that. How would you begin to disentangle this and solve the puzzle? Well, that's, that's such a broad question. Uh, I, I, it's a little hard to answer without knowing more about the nature of the business and exactly what's coming in on the calls. But I guess I would start with listen to what they're saying and uh, engage with them, ask some follow-up questions, and don't jump to the conclusion that you understand exactly what they're upset about. Sometimes, especially when people are upset, they're not so good at articulating what the problem is. Uh, and so you got to slow them down and try to pin them down on the details of exactly what has made them unhappy and what could have made them happier. And again, um, beyond that, I think so much depends on exactly uh, all of the details that you didn't give me in this hypothetical story. But starting by listening to people is, is probably always the right place. And I'd love to get your take when it comes to the asking and the listening. You're right. Sometimes you don't quite get what you want. And I'm thinking about, you know, entrepreneurs who ask, hey, would you buy this at $20 a unit? And people say, absolutely. They say, well, great. I've got some in my car right now. And it's like, oh, uh, never mind. And so what we ask of people is often not reflective of their true behaviors. Any ways around that. Always be trying to look beyond the obvious at what are the incentives that are driving the way people are behaving. In your case, of course, people are saying yes, probably because it's the easiest way to get you to shut up. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> and if you stop and think about what they're trying to accomplish, uh, what you're hoping they're trying to accomplish is to give you accurate information about what you're, but th they're not interested in whether you have accurate information. They're interested in moving on to something they find a little more interesting. And so just uh, having that level of insight into what other people are trying to accomplish will help you interpret what they're telling you. Oh, very much. And I think about that with regard to surveys where your answer could make you look bad mm -hmm. in terms of, yes, of course, I recycle always, <laughs> like, you know, because to admit aloud is probably even harder to do than, say, anonymous survey that you don't recycle or you recycle very rarely when it's only super convenient for you or kind of whatever the thing may be. That's sort of the incentive at play here is just sort of not feeling like a jerk or a loser. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, so then you got a bunch of puzzles in your book. I'd love it if you were so kind as to spare us from those that would be kind of too complex without the visual aid in order to work with. But could you perhaps share one that we can work with auditorily alone that you think offers some pretty substantial mental expansion when you work through it? Okay, here's one. Here's one from uh, the political world. Coal miners get a lot of attention from politicians. Uh, there are uh, There's a lot of uh, pressure to make life better for coal miners, to keep their wages up, to keep their working conditions better. Fast food cooks are far more numerous than coal miners. You don't see any of that with the fast food cooks. Um, politicians are, they campaign in West Virginia. They make promises for what they're going to do for the coal miners. We don't see any of that for so many other occupations, so many other unskilled occupations, which have many, many more people in them. What is it about the coal miners that causes them to get all this attention that the other people don't get? Ooh, ooh, can I try? <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so my guess is that we think about incentives. The politicians are receiving some election campaign money from energy companies that have a vested interest in coal being alive and well and flourishing. Good. And why do they get that from the coal companies and not, say, from the restaurants? Yeah. Well, that's another layer. Why are the coal companies putting all that pressure on them to, say, take care of our employees and the restaurants not putting all that pressure on them? Well, my knee-jerk reaction is that the fast food companies have plans to automate away many of their workers as soon as possible, as I'm seeing with the McDonald's order kiosk. But there could be any number of factors. Oh, but this has been going on for, for decades and decades mm. and decades. The answer that most economists will give you and that I absolutely believe is the correct one is this. If politicians respond to the needs of coal companies, coal companies will benefit. If politicians help the restaurants, if they help uh, fulfill the needs of the restaurants, what will happen is new restaurants will open to take advantage of that. It's much easier to open a new restaurant than to open a new coal mine. There's a limited amount of places where you can open a coal mine. The coal mines are already there. If we make life better for the coal miners and the people who employ the coal miners, the people in the coal mines will benefit. If we make life better for the restaurants and the people who, em who are employed by the restaurants, New restaurants will spring up to take advantage of that, and the benefits will be dissipated. They will be spread out over until the new restaurants will drive down prices at the old restaurants to the point where the old restaurants don't benefit much anyway, and therefore they don't bother lobbying 
for these favors. They don't bother lobbying for things that new entrants can come along and take a share of. This is the same reason why all around the world, farmers get all kinds of largesse from government, whereas motels, for example, do not. Farmers find it worthwhile to lobby for government favors because there's a limited amount of farmland. They don't have to worry about new farms cropping up in the middle of New York City. Motels, if you treat the motels well politically, new motels will open up. The old motels will suffer from the new competition almost as much as they benefit from the government benefits. So uh, all around the world in all times, what we see is that government largesse is directed toward those industries that it is difficult to enter and not to the industries that it's easy to enter. It, there, are, there are strong patterns of that all over the place, and the, uh, uh, what we see follows those patterns just as theory predicts that it would. Hmm. Well, that is thought-provoking and hopefully not disheartening. <laughs> <laughs> it's the way of the world. In terms of, yeah, I was listening to um, this podcast, which was just an audiobook called um, The United States is Lesterland, and it was all about people who donate to campaigns. And apparently there's approximately the same number of people who donate to campaigns as there are people named Lester, you know, in the U.S. <laughs> and so that was the analogy. And it kind of got you thinking about the incentives and how they're aligned. And it didn't make you feel so great in terms of, you know, government by the people for the people kind of a way. <laughs> um, shall I go on to another example? Let's do it. Yeah. So that's good. So we were thinking about incentives and the next layers of incentives. Let's move away from politics yeah. and, and go to something uh, much more uh, within the family. Uh, all over the world, there are cultures where for one reason or another, we have a lot of evidence parents prefer sons to daughters uh, overwhelmingly in some places. Yeah, we just had a daughter and we think she's wonderful for the record. <laughs> My one child is a daughter. I always wanted a daughter. It was perfect. Uh, but there are many places around the world where there is an overwhelming preference for sons. What would you expect then at the adoption agencies in those places? If you go to those places where people are, are, are striving for sons, when you go to the adoption agencies, who do you think gets adopted more easily, the boys or the girls? You would think maybe if you didn't think very deeply, you would expect it to be the boys. That's what people want. They'll go to the adoption agencies. They'll ask for boys. The opposite is true. At the adoption agencies in those places, they ask for girls. And the more the boys are preferred in those cultures, the more it's the girls who are most easily placed by the adoption agencies. What's the reason for that? Again, it kind of looks crazy on the surface, but if you think about the incentives people are facing, it's pretty clear. In a place where people really want boys, they will sometimes take a perfectly healthy, perfectly functioning, intelligent, cheerful girl child and put her up for adoption just because they don't want a girl. It's a very sad thing, but it happens. Yeah, Boys tend to get sent to the adoption agency only if there's something really wrong with them behaviorally or they've got an illness or something like that. Ah. So when you go to that adoption agency, you look at the kids, maybe you can't see for sure, but if you live in that culture, you're pretty aware going in that a lot of the boys in that agency are going to be there because they were problem children. And a lot of the girls in that agency are going to be there just because they're girls. And even if you prefer a boy, you don't want a problem child you may prefer a healthy, well-behaved girl 
to an unhealthy, ill-behaved boy, even if you prefer boys, going into the agency, you know statistically what you're most likely to find there. And so you turn immediately to the girls. Yeah. Now, is there a name for that phenomenon in terms of like there's a reversal based upon the reaction to the incentives. There's got to be a pithy name for that. There ought to be a name for that, yeah, isn't there? Because I've heard this sort of a thing in a number of different scenarios. And well, maybe that will be your legacy, Stephen. <laughs> I'll, I'll work on it. I don't know. <laughs> no pressure. But again, the idea is that uh, you see people behaving in a way you don't quite understand and you uh, think a little deeper about it, and then you do understand it. And it's fun to understand things. Mm -hmm. It works not just for people, but for animals. What happens if you take a big, strong pig and a little weak pig, and you put them in a box, and you make them compete for food? Now, economists thought about this question and made a prediction. And then the biologists did us the favor of actually taking a big, strong pig and a little weak pig and putting them in a box and letting them compete for food. Yeah, because they're macabre, these biologists. The pigs behave exactly as the economists would predict, which might not be the way that everyone would predict. In fact, it's the little pig who eats better. And here's why. The little pig gets most of the food. The box is set up, so there's a food bowl at one end and a lever at the other. You gotta push the lever to make the bowl fill up with food. And the little pig has absolutely no incentive to push that lever because if the little pig pushes the lever, the big pig will grab all of the food. He'll push the little pig as the little pig will come down to the bowl. The big pig will already be there and will push him aside. We'll eat 100% of the food. Because of that, the little pig quickly figures out there's no point in pushing that lever. The big pig, if the big pig pushes the lever, here's what happens. The little pig waits by the bowl eats most of the food before the big pig can get down there. The big pig pushes the lever and then comes running the length of the box. Once the big pig gets there, he pushes the little pig out of the way and gets the dregs, gets the little bit of food that's left, just enough to give him an incentive to keep pushing that lever. The little pig eats most of the food. The big pig does all the work. And again, it's uh, perhaps the opposite of what you would have expected at first, but it's exactly what you would expect if you took the time to think through the incentives and it's also exactly what actually happens in the real world. Mm -hmm. And that setup, that totally makes sense. I guess if there was just food in the middle and there was a free-for-all, then the big pig... <laughs> then the big pig would get it all. It's just sort of simple, kind of pushing around factors. Okay, well, Stephen, tell me, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Well, I certainly want to mention uh, that if anybody is intrigued by some of these examples and wants to see more, they can go to outsmartaneconomist.com. It's all one word, outsmartaneconomist.com. They can read the first chapter of this book for free, read some reviews and get some information on how to order the book. So if you are intrigued or think you might be intrigued, go to outsmartaneconomist.com, outsmartaneconomist.com and uh, read the first chapter and see if you like it. Mm -hmm. Okay, sure thing. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? A favorite quote? I'm going to go with look beyond the obvious. I think that's the quote that is uh, most appropriate to what we've been talking about here. Always look beyond the obvious. Mm -hmm. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Uh, all these little stories you can tell about uh, the way people behave and the um, studies that point to intriguing, unusual little bits of behavior that then we can try to explain. Again, I, I like to look at those Many, many small things rather than trying to point to one big thing. All right. And how about a favorite book? 
Well, I've just finished reading a couple of these books by Steven Pinker, the uh, evolutionary psychologist and, and linguist. Uh, I find them very insightful. He thinks a lot about human behavior, thinks a lot about what's going on a little uh, deeper than uh, many people do, I think. He's not an economist, but he is looking at the same kinds of questions people look at. Why do people behave the way they do? What underlies a lot of apparently irrational behavior? How do we explain that behavior as actually being in the best interests of the people who are behaving that way? Uh, the one book of his that stands out to me is called The Blank Slate, and I, I certainly recommend that one. Books in economics, there are uh, so many good books in economics. There's a textbook by Armin Alchin and uh, William Allen called uh, Exchange and Production. It's a very, uh, I expect that title sounds pretty boring, but it's actually an extremely lively book and a wonderful book to learn fantastic amounts of economics with very little formalism, very little mathematics, just a lot of storytelling, but wonderful stories. So that, that's another book I would encourage everyone to get a hold of. Mm -hmm. And how about a favorite tool? Something that helps you be awesome at your job. Oh, my uh, my computer, without a doubt. I'm never without it. Mm -hmm. And a favorite habit? Well, I guess I have an, a favorite slash unfavorite habit of doing that half hour on the treadmill every morning, no matter what. I hate it, but I am very happy with the fact that I have cultivated that habit and don't let myself uh, don't let myself miss it. I think it's uh, probably I hope it's doing some good for my health. God knows there could be a study coming out tomorrow showing just the opposite. But as far as I know, it's good. And I think, uh, you know, cultivating habits, cultivating the habit of doing things that are really good for you, even when you don't want to do them, is probably uh, a good meta habit. Mm -hmm. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with readers? That thinking is fun. And thinking a little more deeply about things is uh, not only does it make you uh, more able to cope with the world. Not only does it make you more able to uh, make decisions better and understand other people's decisions and interact with other people in politics, in markets, in the family, but that the main reason to think deeply about things is that it is that you have a lot of fun along the way. Mm -hmm. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, buy my book. <laughs> okay, right on. Well, Stephen, thanks so much and good luck to you. Thank you very much. I really love how Stephen urged us to challenge that natural knee-jerk reaction just to assume when something doesn't make sense that, you know, they're dumb. <laughs> you know, like, oops, they screwed up somehow. But instead to say, no, no, they're probably smart and doing this for a reason. What is that reason? What are the incentives behind it? And to note that you can have fun with that. And I think that's great and edifying both for you and mankind as you have more sort of goodwill and generosity and assuming the best in people and for your own brain in terms of generating some great insights and keeping yourself sharp and thinking all the more deeply and frequently and having fun with it. So hope you dug that reminder from Stephen. If you catch yourself assuming that someone's just dumb, I hope that you'll take a second thought and have some fun digging in and thinking about it a little further. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F416. If you haven't already, I hope to push the subscribe button. If you do, you'll catch our next guest. It's Laura Vanderkam. She is coming back and she is talking about her book, Juliet's School of Possibilities and how to liberate yourself from being crazy, busy, overwhelmed and how that's done well. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. 
you can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.